All right, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 14, or you can follow along up on the wall or your favorite app. We're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've kind of sort of calling this little shorter series in, in chapter 14 as what it means to follow Jesus when we're overwhelmed, which we joke in our house about the phrase overwhelmed and exhausted, you know, because it just, it just seems to be where, where we live. But uh, one thing I do want to point out, the approach that we take not only to how we order our gathering and our lives as a church is, is also connected to how I think about these sermons. There's a lot of great ways to preach, a lot of different tactics, approaches to homiletics, the fancy word for it. But what I want us to do is to read God's word and to hear God's word as Jesus' disciples. That makes sense. So if a disciple is someone who's seeking to submit all of their life to the Lordship of Christ, someone who's learning to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did, that's how I want us to, to, to listen. Like, what does it look like for me to, to be with him and to become like him and to do what he did? And so that, that'll shape this morning, and it does every week. But if you didn't know that, I just wanted to Wanted to say that out loud. So Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. We touched on verses 13 and 14 a couple weeks ago, but it's important to, to connect those to this passage as well. Now when Jesus heard this, that is John the baptizer's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into villages and buy for food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Father, we thank you for the good news this morning that you are so incredibly faithful. We cast ourselves upon your character, upon the cross of Christ, the resurrection upon the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit now. We pray that we would be open to your truth, the truth that sets us free, that you would give us wisdom even as you give us ears to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a long time since I've ran out of gas, in my car, that is. So I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but when I was younger, at least a couple times, I remember just foolishly thinking, I've got enough to make it, 
and then just being stuck on the side of the road and having to make that long walk either home. I remember one time not getting, I wasn't far from home, having to walk home or having to walk to the gas station and buy an overpriced gas can. And this was back in the days without cell phones, so sometimes you could walk to a pay phone, right? And that, for many of you in here, that would be like a weird alternate reality. But that was a real part of our lives for some of us that were in here. When you run out of gas in your car, it can be a little scary. You can get a little exhausted. You can feel quite a bit stupid. Because you thought you could go longer than you could with what you had. And I think that is exactly how it can feel as disciples of Jesus who are seeking to follow him in this weary world and live a life on mission. We sometimes feel like we have outdriven our gas. We thought we could make it. We had these big dreams, these big goals, these big expectations, but now at times we feel like we're stuck, stranded on the side of the road, and we're a little afraid because now what are we going to do? We feel a little stupid because we're kind of exposed at maybe not having what it takes, much less to help other people. Today in the Word of God, we find the people of God where we find them many times in the story of God. And that is they have got to a place where they have found themselves not having what it takes to keep going. Jesus definitely has what it takes, but we see him here even struggling in light of the fact that his friend, his cousin, the one he says there's not one greater in the kingdom of God in that period of the old covenant, John has died. So how do we keep going? I believe God's word leads us this morning to root our faithfulness, the faithfulness we need to follow Jesus, not in the power of our own resources, but in the power of his redemption. I'm going to say that again. If we want to keep going when it feels like we're out of gas, then we have got to root our faithfulness, not in the power of our own resources, even how we feel about our resources, even how we might say it is our reality. We cannot root it in the power of that, but in the power of His redemption. So we're going to talk about three times when this is true. And this first point, again, similar to a couple of weeks ago, but it's very important as we connect to the feeding of the 5,000. The first time we do this is when we don't have enough emotionally to keep going. We have got to follow the unwavering, sufficient compassion of Jesus. Notice again here in verse 13, when he heard this, what has Jesus heard? Jesus has heard that John the baptizer has been martyred. He has been killed. But has he just been martyred or killed in any sort of like even normal way, if there was a normal way? No, he's been beheaded. Has he just been beheaded? No, he's been beheaded. His head's been put on a plate and publicly paraded before the powers of the world as if the kingdom of God has no consequence in this world. And due to this season now, Herod, the one who executed this gruesome death of John, now has Jesus on his radar... And Jesus here we see in verse 13 withdraws from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus regularly does this as a rhythm in his life. But in context here it says he, it seems that he's doing this in response to what has happened in John. He is getting away to grieve. 
He is getting away to mourn. He's getting away to pray. How far is he getting away? He's not just going to a desolate place. He's getting in a boat, right? They can find me if I'm on land, right? So he's going to get on a boat and go be by himself with the Father for a while. We talked about last time how we need to see from Jesus, and this is going to, this is going to take a total U-turn in a second, you might think, but I, it's not. It's okay to do that. It's not just okay to do that. It's healthy to do that. When you get your heart broke, sometimes, and not just sometimes, we've got to create a rhythm in our life to be alone with the Father, to grieve and to share. But then there's the other side of the coin. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And how did he respond? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So there's not only this pattern in the Gospels of Jesus retreating to be alone with the Father, but there's equally this pattern of Jesus seeing the crowd, having compassion on them, and then healing or acting in service to them. So we've said this before, and we're going to say it again this morning. Jesus can simultaneously be sad and live sent. This is so important. I'm just going to just say it again. I would put it, I would put it on the wall if I could. Jesus can simultaneously be sad and live sent. Jesus can be angry and stay active. Jesus can be super lonely and keep loving others. Jesus can be really hurt and, st and still care to heal. Jesus, I would even dare to say, can have a, a measure of fear, healthy fear, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and still be faithful. And this is whom we're following. That's why I say we read this like disciples. If I've heard one thing in my life as a pastor more than others, is people will look at me and say, well, I'm not Jesus. And step one is, you're right, you're not. Thank goodness we're not him, right? Only he can do what he can do. But we do realize we're his disciples, and to be a disciple, to be a Christian, is to be one who's seeking to live the life that he lived by the power that only he can supply. Henry Nouwen speaks of this concept of a wounded healer, and he tells a story that comes from the Talmud by, about a, a rabbi by the name of Joshua ben Levi. He said, it's just a made-up story. He says, he came up to Elijah the prophet and asked Elijah, when will the Messiah come? And Elijah replied, go and ask him yourself. And the rabbi asked, well, where do, you, where do you see him? The prophet replied, he's sitting at the city gate. Well, there's going to be hundreds of people at the city gate. How will I know which one is the Messiah? And the answer came from Elijah. He is sitting amongst the poor, covered with wounds. The others unbind all their wounds at the same time and then bind them all up again. But he, the Messiah, unbinds his wounds one at a time and binds them up again, saying to himself, Perhaps I shall be needed for someone, and I must always be ready so as not to delay for a moment. 
Jesus lived, as we sing at times, a man of sorrows, wounded and grieving. But what set him apart was that in his wounds, he did not become careless, he did not become calloused, and he did not become condemning. But he overflowed with compassion. I have a lot of fear in saying things like that because I know what a lot of us and a lot of you live through and are going through. But the wounded healer would lead us to learn what it means to be wounded healers. If we are to stay on mission, if we are to really live and flourish and fulfill the, the life that God has given for us in this world, then we have got to learn to be wounded healers. What does that mean? First off, it means we have to be honest. Like, you can't do that if you stuff all your pain. We're not talking about denying our experience, our hurt, by going and getting to work, right? Like that, making an idolatry of work. Like, I don't want to feel anything, so I'm just going to go do stuff for other people. No, that is not what Jesus is doing here. It's holding this tension together. I can mourn and live on mission. I can be sad and I can show up. Emotional health and urgent mission are not enemies. I want to say that again. Emotional health and mission with a sense of urgency for a world that needs the gospel declared and demonstrated are not enemies. We have got to create space for both in our lives. And to acknowledge it helps us do that. We've got a plan. We've got to have the rhythm like Jesus did. I have a rhythm to where I get away and I'm with the Father so that I can mourn and I can be real. But I also have these rhythms of where I've engaged in my everyday life, in the life of my missional community. And when we are purposeful in that rhythm, then it can help us engage both of them without this sense of guilt or this sense of bitterness. Because we know I'm, I'm going to do both. I have space for both. What's that going to mean? It's going to mean our lives are going to have to get more organized. And so we're going to have to have not only that honest compassion, but a wise compassion. Do we need to set boundaries in our life? Yes. It's not just always every time somebody knocks at the door, we go answer it. I mean, Jesus is out on a boat, for goodness sake, right? So nobody can knock on the door. But we set boundaries with priorities. It's very important. Not the priority that, you know, you make sure you get to binge the latest dropping on Netflix. That's just so easy pickings. I feel bad talking about that. What a you know, cliche example. We set boundaries with priorities. Jesus says to those who are anxious about their lives... Seek you first the kingdom of God. Through the life of our missional community, there is, there is not enough time in the day to love and serve the people that we have placed our lives in proximity to, let alone our own families. There's boundaries that have to be set, but boundaries should be set with the priorities of the way of Jesus. 
especially on the days where we feel like we don't emotionally have enough. I mean, how easy is it on those days or weeks when you're just like, I'm done. And now all of a sudden we're like really super spiritual about emotional health and boundaries. You know, I'm done. Where can I find something that says I can just go do what I want? <laughs> now it's when we say, okay, I'm going to come before the Lord. Jesus, I'm done. I know you care about my heart. Help me know what my priorities are right now. So we have honest compassion. We have wise compassion. But we got to have purposeful compassion. So Jesus gives us those. Maybe he's like, well, I think you ought to prioritize this over that. Well, the only way you know you got to step into that with his purpose. Jesus didn't just go back to the shore and walk around patting everybody on the back, shaking hands, have a nice day. Like, why in the world did I come back here just to show up before a crowd? I mean, who knows, some of you might be showing up at your family meal in your missional community life or the people that you serve, and you're just kind of like, well, felt like I should be here. That is not what we're trying to do. So we just want to say it again. Why do you show up? Why do we even do these things called missional communities? Why do we even challenge the people in our church, whether you're in one of those or not, to take an incarnational posture in your life where you situate yourself among people who need the good news of the kingdom? Why? Because that's just not on whoever's leading your missional community, your fight club, or giving you guidance in your everyday life. We want, everybody's got to own this. Why? Why when I'm emotionally done? Well, why did Jesus do it? Because he had compassion. Care less about people just showing up for stuff. We want people to come with compassion. That word in the Greek, splagna, is move from the gut. That's what compels you after a long day at the office, a hard season at home. It's because when you feel your pain fully before the Lord, it can help you attune yourself to the pain of all those other people who are going to show up with you. And you can give them the love that you're receiving from the Father. And guess what? Sometimes it's most powerful when you're the most broken. The world doesn't need happy, clappy Christians all the time. But they also don't need dour, detached ones either. We just want to follow Jesus here. It's gospel compassion. And how do we feel it when we don't feel it? Well, we've got to learn to see people how Jesus does. When Jesus sees this mass of people, his gut reaction is, Oh, Lord, I just want to get away. And at the same time, don't forget what he just did. Okay? There's a tension here. He's not like, this is going to be all night, and I had other things I needed to do. And at the same time, he says, don't stuff feeling that. Talk to me about it. He sees them as people made in the image of God who he has been sent to love. And then he will pray over his disciples as the Father has sent me, so send I you. 
I think he wants us to see our families in the crowd. So the goal, again, of our missional community is simply to, to create a table, to create a space where people who have yet to experience the fullness of the grace and the glory of God, which is people here still, but others who have yet to know that, to just come and be there. And sometimes we think, well, I've got to choose between loving my biological family and loving the family of God. And again, there are priorities, there are boundaries at play, but what would happen if you saw those very people as family too? And ultimately, you've got to see your face in the crowd. It's really good news that Jesus came for us, even at the great cost it had for him. And we see our mission in the crowd. Not just to serve food, but to serve food in Jesus' name. Not just to... Man, I... I I really hate what our religious culture's done to us. We're all just so motivated unconsciously by guilt, you know. We're... But to love. Now, I, I want to say this before I get to these next points. Some people might say, oh, man, that, that sounds like a church trying to just use people. Well, just real quick, we, we can trust Jesus without a psychological study to back it. But here's just something I wanted to throw in here. And, and you, you, again, how you prepare something is because you have your own questions. So this is just me talking to myself. Man, am I going to go out there and like make myself worse by, by when I don't feel like doing something, doing it? By going and caring for people and showing compassion and sacrifice? Well, a psychological study of the last decade referenced by Journal of Personality and Social, Social Psychology, Clinical Psychology and Psychotherapy, Journal of Clinical Psychology. So if those mean anything to you, they examine two ways of how people try to deal with anxiety and depression. One is, is to focus on your... And this is not a Christian thing, right? So if you're like, well, let's make sure this isn't just Christian spiritual abuse and use to get people to show up and get the stuff done. People who approach those issues through self-image goals... That is, they wanted to obtain status or approval and avoid vulnerability, especially during social interactions, in contrast to people who showed, had compassionate goals, who strove, were striving, strove, no words, striving to help others, avoiding selfish behavior, and making a positive difference in someone's life. Guess what the results showed? The people who had compassionate goals over versus self-image goals actually experienced a lot more flourishing fulfillment in life. Their relationships were better, and their sense of health in life was better. The study said these results are both good and bad news for people with anxiety and depression. The bad news is, is that trying to boost our self-image by avoiding vulnerability and seeking others' approval backfires in more ways than one. It leaves us feeling depressed and anxious and damages our relationships. These two effects can lead in a downward spiral. On the other hand, the good news, the really good news, is that by turning our attention toward helping others, we make everyone better, ourselves included. We find not only relief from our depression and anxiety, but also improvements in our relationships. So again, we don't need to add that to what Jesus does here, but I just wanted to say that in case you're wondering. Sometimes the best thing to do is what you don't feel like doing. 
But it won't work if you just do it to say, let's see if this works. It'll only do it if you do it to step into the way of Jesus. So when we don't have enough emotionally, we follow Jesus into his unwavering, sufficient, redemptive power. But also, what about when we don't have enough materially? So, okay, I'm going to go try this, but we don't got what it takes to get it done. Verses 15 to 19. Notice verse 15. It was evening. It's late. The disciples came to him, healing people all day. This is a desolate place. The day is over. Send the crowds away. Go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Uh, commentators, scholars have a lot of different uh, views on whether disciples are just trying to be practical here or whether this is kind of personal. But either way you take it, it seems like the disciples kind of are saying, we're done. There's no way to feed these crowds. And maybe they were thinking, hey, it's late. I just, I just want to chill. Sometimes that is what they do if you read the Gospels. Jesus isn't always doing just the same thing, right? He keeps us, he keeps us on our toes. But Jesus said they don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. Oh, we just read over this stuff, don't we? Put yourself in their shoes. Jesus, we're tired, it's late, we're alone, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. And there's, remember, we know now because we've already read it all, how many people are we talking about? We're not talking about 30 or 50 or 40 or 100, 500, 5,000 plus women and children. And Jesus is like, you give them something to eat. I, I think I can say this. Do you ever think that the disciples were, were like just almost tempted? When I mean, we know they talk back to him sometimes. Like, give me a break. And what do they say? I don't think, I, it doesn't, I don't know if this is a sarcastic thing. We've got five loaves and two fish, Jesus. Those were the facts. Some of us in here are people who are facts people. Here are the facts. Jesus, you want me to do this, but here are the facts. And you know, we can kind of sit back and say, you're moved, Jesus. Which is a great thing for you to do. And a dangerous thing. Because he says, bring it to me. I know you ain't got a lot. You don't have enough to get this mission done. You don't. You can't do it. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Side note, isn't it amazing? Jesus could just be walking around doing all this stuff, couldn't he? Food, like healing people. But what is he doing? I'm getting to the third point. We're running out of time anyway. He's, he's, it's always relational, isn't it? It's never just about what he's wanting to get done. It's always about the discipleship relationship. We miss this in our MCs, our fight clubs, our relationships, our parenting, our, our friendships and our suites and our dorms, right? As we're trying to figure out how do we get the results. And Jesus is like, the real action's in the relationship, in the process. And I'm like, that's what I don't want, Jesus. I want you to show me how to be such a good planner that I don't have to do all that. I want to snap my fingers and the needs be met. And 
that's just not how Jesus rolls. So they present their facts, and now here Jesus presents a greater fact. And what is the greater fact we see in verses 18 or 19? It's himself. Jesus is always the greater fact. So notice through here, I won't read it all again, but he asked for the five loaves and two fishes. Now again, maybe ten to 15,000 people, and Jesus says, give me that. Just imagine, he's, he's got this. I don't know how he's holding it or what he's holding it in, in the front of all them. And then he has the crowd sit down. So no microphone, but whatever Jesus is bringing in this divine combo unity of humanity and divinity, he tells them to sit down on the grass. And ten to 15,000 people sit down without a microphone. It's just amazing, right? And then he looks up to heaven. And he says a blessing. And I don't think he's saying a blessing over the food. But the way this works, he's blessing God. The God who fed Israel in the wilderness. The God who took nothing and made it into everything through Elijah for the widow. Okay, try again. The God. I mean, this is, he's, 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 he's blessing God. He's not saying, God, make this food taste good. And, and we're, we're brought back into the story of Moses. We're brought back into the story of Elijah. It seems like there's something in the scriptures about a, a Lord who makes us sit down in green pastures. And if you go and read this in the Gospel of Mark, it actually says that the grass was green. The greater Moses, the greater David, the greater Elijah is the one that these disciples are following. And it's the one we're following too. That's who you're going to go to work with tomorrow. That's who you're going to have lunch with this afternoon. That's who you're going to have that conversation with your roommate, that conversation with your spouse, your kids. That's who's going to go with you into that. That's who's going to be there waiting at your family meal and the other ways your missional community uh, follows Christ on mission. Into your fight. That's who's going to be there, and he's going to be there, and you're going to say, we don't really got a lot in the tank. Or on the table. But we got you. Some people would point out when it speaks here of him breaking this bread. As it may just be the only way that Matthew could write. He broke the bread. But if you'll read later on in the story. We know there's going to be another time where Jesus breaks the bread. This is not only pointing back to Moses, David and Elijah. But likely pointing or Elisha, that is, I should have got that right, the son's name, but pointing forward to a breaking of his own body so that he might feed the world. This is Jesus doing a display of the fact that he is the one who is enough. 
There was also another time in this gospel when somebody tried to get Jesus to make bread out of nothing in a wilderness, and he wouldn't do it. But now he does it. And a table is spread of a messianic kingdom of God banquet in the wilderness through people who don't have nothing to make it happen in and of themselves. This is amazing. In college, I had a friend, I may have mentioned him before, his name was Dave, and he was amazingly well provided for financially. And it led to me getting to do and experience things in college. And I, I was in the city of Chicago that I would never have done. So before he was my friend, I was like in my dorm room by myself, and our school had tunnels. So right downtown Chicago, you don't really got to go out. So I know they, do they talk about the Lee bubble here maybe sometimes. Well, in Chicago, they talked about the Moody bubble. It's Moody Violence Institute, that's what it was called. And it was so bubblicious, you had tunnels. So like you could almost, you could almost say, I don't even got to like be out in the city if I don't walk. I'm like going through this tunnel system. Well, before Dave, it was kind of like tunnel system life. But then when Dave came along, I, I kid you not, not pastor exaggeration, if you know anything about Chicago, there's a strip called Michigan Avenue, the Magnificent Mile. We would pull up in front of any of those places, and he would park, put his car, park his car and put the flashers on, and we would just walk into wherever like we own the place. And we would come out, and there might be 20 parking tickets on there. And they might as well have been Jolly Rancher rappers. He did not care. And I was like, I think sometimes I like to be friends with people like that, because I'm like the, the most exact opposite, because it's like, this is kind of nice, living vicariously through people who don't give a rip about what others think or the world. <laughs> we would go to, to Chicago Cubs games, and you know you're not really supposed to do this, but like we would, he would just buy all the food he wanted and walk it right through the gate. And we're just bringing in Slurpees from 7-Eleven or whatever. Like, who cares, you know? And then he, he could have bought nice tickets, but we'd get bleacher seats, and we, he would just say, hey, follow me. And we'd just go sit right down on the front row behind the catcher. <laughs> and I'm just this small-town kid from Chatsworth, Georgia, you know, who going to Pigeon Forge is seeing the world. <laughs> and I love it. No, I did. I did love it. But that was like, whoa, we, we're seeing the world here, guys. Hillbilly golf, still one of my favorites. No, haunted golf. But I, I, did, not, I did not have the ability. I had no business living like that. And, and we have a greater provider in Jesus for what really matters in the world. And what we get to do now is go and do things we really have no business doing in and of ourselves. It's amazing because he's enough. He supplies. It's always surprising. But his power is enough. Kaylee, click to this next this picture so I can embarrass some folks. So Wednesday, I was in one of those spaces where, like, I don't have enough emotionally, right? Why do we have to have missional community? Uh, I'm getting in all these headspace, and then I show up to this, and you probably can't see it, and the picture isn't big enough to show that there's all these other people fanned out 
loving people. I mean, you can tell. People, people in our mission community who are tired, right? They could be at home with their legs kicked up. And here they have said, on this, on this Wednesday night, I'm going to come out here and I'm going to love people. I guarantee you there's a story for every person behind that table and a story for everybody sitting out there at those tables that would have said, what's the point? What's the point? And, and it's just a blessing to get this front row seat to people following in the way of Jesus. And I don't know how many weeks we're all out there thinking, I don't know how this is going to last, or I don't know how this is all going to come together. And even if it happens in strange and surprising ways, God is faithful. And, and we do it, we can show up from our stories because we know there's a story for every person who's also sitting at those tables or coming through wanting that food. There's that kid there that has had probably maybe nobody look them in the eye and ask them, can I give you something to eat? If you think I'm exaggerating that, then you're out of touch with what so many of these children live with in and around our city and neighborhood. To say, hey, can I, would you like some rice? Is a, is a stab in the domain of darkness. To ask somebody, how was your day at school? What's life been like for you here lately? Tell me about yourself. The kid with little to eat, the elderly with no one to talk to, the spouses who are lonely and fighting, the people who are stuck in houses where hoarding has gone out of control, can come and have a place of rest and peace. In Jesus' name. Jesus is enough. We're not. The way we get in on this is the first thing is we just got to own this. This mission is impossible. Until we realize that we're unqualified for it, we're never going to be able to engage in it. We're just going to be defeated. It's just too much. It's just too big. It's looking at 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish and saying, really, what's the point? Staring out of a crowd or a city or a common mission that your MC has, thinking of the idols, the addictions. And again, we only have two loaves and two fishes of our time, our money, our energy, our season of life. But we continue to be faithful because we believe that Jesus is powerful. We know that He has enough forgiveness for everybody. Enough healing power. We believe he can raise the dead. And you know when miracles usually happen? It's when they're needed. And I would dare to say, and this is an area of growth for myself, I know, if we're not asking for miracles, that's a good sign we're not actually on mission. Jesus always leads his disciples to the point to where they have to see him do the work. If we're not saying, wow, I don't, I don't know how to share the gospel and see these people come to Jesus. I don't, I don't know how to like actually love people. I don't know how to actually reorient my life to be a disciple. 
and I hope that doesn't sound strong to you. We said that from the beginning of our church, but Jesus is asking you to reorient your entire life around being his follower. And that's going to look different for all of us, but that much is clear. When we are done and we don't have enough, he has enough. And the good news is he wants us to experience more of him. Which leads us to this last point that I think is important as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Just notice verse 20 and 21. When we don't have enough emotionally, Jesus is enough. When we don't have enough materially, Jesus is enough. But the last part is, and this is connected, is when we don't have enough spiritually. What we may miss is, what do what the disciples risk by giving their five loaves and two fish to Jesus? Their food. No wonder they're like, send them away. We only have enough for us. So now the ante's upped. Now it's like, Jesus, we've got to give you what we had, so now we might not have anything. That's a sacrifice. But what does Jesus do? As he breaks the bread in this miraculous, mosaic, Davidic, Elisha-ic, to make up a word, and the, the bread is multiplied through his supernatural power, it says in verse 20, and they all ate and were satisfied. But notice this, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Hmm... Twelve baskets. Hmm. Twelve tribes of Israel. There was enough and more for all that the restoration of Israel needed. There's a lot of disciples. There's more than twelve. But we know that there's these twelve disciples, though, that have been singled out as apostles. So guess what? Every one of those 12 has enough for themselves. Don't miss that. There's enough for the crowd, but there's also enough for the disciples. Jesus loves these guys. He's not trying to use them and abuse them, and he loves you. Every step of the way, he's involving them in this. John Chrysostom, this early preacher in the early church, says, this is the teacher's skill. Not I will feed them, but you will feed them. And in their feeding them, you will be fed. Is this not what they're getting to see in the cross? The crowds, you know what's also interesting here is it doesn't even say that the crowds knew what happened. Do you notice that? But the disciples sure do. As Jesus will go to the cross, will the crowds have any clue what is happening? No. But the disciples will have ringing in their ears, greater love has no man than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. I am the bread of life. I will be broken, and if you feed upon me, you will have life Jesus is not there to motivate them with guilt or motivate us with guilt but with grace 
with faith and with love. And Jesus in His discipleship is the, not only the greater Moses, David, and Elisha, but the greater Mr. Miyagi. So if any, I know, I know there's some new karate show about connected to, to that, to the karate kid, but I haven't watched it yet. Heard it's good, but I don't know. But I know the original karate kid, and that's Daniel's son out with Mr. Miyagi, painting fences, waxing cars, and what is he doing? He's getting mad. What is the point? National community, fight club, church, loving my neighbors. All right, Jesus, I'm doing it. And what we don't realize is that he is at work. He is at work in us. In my depression earlier this week, before I walked into that, I thought, I'm going to write a book called Nothing to Show for It. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> what Jesus is inviting us into is he is saying, you know, and we say this all the time, but I'm saying it again, sometimes you really think all I'm doing is using you to get some kind of mission done. And what he's always going to be looking back to us and saying, I'm actually as much using that mission to get you done. I love you as much as I do the crowds. I want to walk with you into a life of mission so that I can be with you and grow with you. Commentator N.T. Wright says, Jesus is always delighted when people around him come up to him with ideas which show their thinking of the needs of others. But often what has to do, he has to do is take those ideas and, and do something starting with them. Jesus says, if you really care for them, he says, why don't you give them something to eat? Leadership hack. <laughs> you didn't hear that, right? Somebody says, why don't we do this? <laughs> why don't you give them something to eat? <laughs> Jesus did it. He goes on to say, our small idea of how to care for people gets bounced back at us with what seems a huge and impossible proposal. You protest, but I can't do it. I haven't got the time. I haven't got the energy. I haven't got the ability. All I have is... Ah, but that's the next step. And again, typical of how God's calling works. By hanging around Jesus, you've had an idea. It wasn't quite in focus, but your main intention in this case that the people should be fed is on target. Jesus proposes achieving that aim by different means. You say it's impossible, but you're prepared to give him the little you've got if it'll be any good. Of course, it means you'll go hungry yourself, but by now you're in too deep to stop. Once the power of Jesus' compassion has began to catch up in its flow, you can't stop. He goes on to say, think through how it's happened. Being close to Jesus has turned into the thought of service. Jesus takes the thought, turns it inside out. Now it's more costly, of course, and gives it back to you as a challenge. In puzzled response to the challenge, you offer what you've got, knowing it's not quite adequate. He takes it, he blesses it, and he breaks it and gives it to you 
And your job now is to give it to everybody else. This is how it works whenever someone is close enough to Jesus to catch a glimpse of what he's doing and how they could help. We blunder in with our ideas. We offer in comprehending what little we have. Jesus takes ideas, loaves and fishes, money, a sense of humor, time, energy, talents, love, artistic gifts, skills with words, quickness of eyes or fingers, whatever we have to bless others. So we're going to run out of gas, but we're not going to run out of Jesus. You're not going to be left walking home or to the gas station or to the payphone humiliated and alone. He's going to be with you. But we must keep going. At times we've spoken of our church with this vision of wanting to be the short-term mission trip that never ends. And we still continue to want to say that, but that takes compassion. Compassion that moves us to others and compassion that we receive from Jesus. But it's a compassion that will demand a gospel explanation when we don't have enough emotionally, materially, or spiritually. As we root our faithfulness, not in our own power, but in the power of Christ. Jesus, we thank you for this time you've given us. And we thank you especially for the time we now have to come to your table to taste and see again that you are good, you are enough. We ask that those who are your followers and who have been baptized into your name to publicly declare that they are with you in your way, that as they take of the bread and the cup, that they would rest and rejoice. We pray for those who have yet to, to place their faith and repentance in you display that to the world. We pray that they would come to you, even as they join us around these tables and, and hear us share, that they would not be drawn merely to a community of faith, but to you, Jesus, who are the object of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.